Hey, uh, this is Charlie Saroff, and you're listening to CinePod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm just ducky. How are you doing? Ducky. That's that's a word I haven't heard in a while. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Yeah, hanging in there. It's uh, time for another episode of Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. Uh, who's on the show today? Well, as we're listening to it right now, just the cinematographer of the number one movie in the country, Charlie Seroff. And what's that number one movie? Smile. Two weeks in a row, number one at the, at the box office. And I'm happy to say a really good horror movie that is uh, bringing people in. Would you say that it being the number one movie two weeks in a row put a smile on your face? <laughs> yes, very much so. And beating out movies like Amsterdam and Lyle Lyle Crocodile and Bros. Mm, all right. Yeah, that's an awesome achievement. Yeah. Congratulations to everyone from Team Smile. And it's a damn fine looking movie. And he gets into this in the interview. But uh, interestingly, uh, you know, we had Greg Fraser on the show and he talked about how for Dune, they did a film output and then brought it back in. Did the same thing on Smile. And now I want to watch it again. Hmm. All right. Apparently, it's just a thing that Photochem offers now. I mean, when you think about it, doing a film out and then retransferring the film like that's not as expensive as shooting on film by a long shot. No, not at all because you're you're you've already got the edit. You don't have all of yeah. that stuff you'd have to throw away. Your your shooting ratio is 1 to 1. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, really good interview, really cool guy. Uh, he shot a horror movie that came out a couple of years ago called Relic that really knocked my socks off. So I'm, I'm really excited to see his career on the rise. All right. So, Ben, what are we going to talk about for uh, close focus today? Well, I mean, I'm sure this isn't the last time we're going to talk about uh, Rust. There's a Deadline article that we all read about it. But um, my good friend Chris Matthews, not the journalist, but like an old friend of mine, was asking me about Not it. Hardball uh, with Chris Matthews? No, no different okay. Chris Matthews. Okay. Was asking me about it today, uh, and he's not in the film business, and I was like, basically three people, in my opinion, are completely at fault here. Number one, the armorer. Number two, the first AD who said cold gun and handed it to Alec Baldwin. And number three, Alec Baldwin, who did not inspect the gun before he picked it up and put his finger on the trigger. But really, it's the armorer. But it's a really weird thing. It's not quite like The Crow, where when we all saw The Crow, it wasn't quite a snuff movie, but we knew Brandon Lee had died while making the movie, and he's in the movie. In this, it's going to be the cinematographer who died, and they're going to presumably hire somebody else to finish the movie. Yeah, that's, and, that's going to be... I don't mean to derail your recap here, Ben, but who's that person who's going to pick that up? Who decides that, you know... Look, this was a show in which mm. much of the camera crew walked off, uh, you know, the day before this happened or the day that this this happened because citing safety concerns. Who's the person who steps forward and goes, yeah, I'll, I'll take over that position. I'll, t I'll take over doing that. So, I mean, I'm sure that you're not going to have a hard time finding somebody. But the real question is, if you're making this movie, are you throwing in good money after bad? Because I'm not saying I would never watch the movie, but it shows up with so much bad publicity and only bad publicity. Like... There's nothing positive that anyone has to say about this movie right now. The the cinematographer being murdered on set 
And then on top of that, all the horror stories that we all heard about what happened on set and like how that set was run. Now, I assume that they're picking up and keeping going and the set will be perfectly well run. You know, even worse than being the cinematographer who picks up, how would you like to be the armorer on the pickups of Rust? Sure. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. On the flip side, though, you kind of go, well, this is the last thing Helena Hutchins shot. Don't we want to see it? Like, doesn't that honor her memory? Yeah, I mean, according to the Deadline article, the Hutchins family filed a wrongful death suit back in February. And it appears now that that suit has gone away. They reached a settlement out of court. It's not being made public. But Matthew Hutchins, Helena's widower, is now the executive producer of the movie. Hmm. And one would only assume that he, I guess, would participate in the profits in some way. But I, I don't really know. It's, it's interesting because it sounds like uh, there's a quote in this deadline article, which he says, the filming of Rust, which will now executive produce, will resume with all the original principal players on board in January mm-hmm. 2023. And he has uh, no interest in engaging in recriminations or attribution of blame to the producers or Mr. Baldwin. And all of us Hmm. believe Helena's death was a terrible accident. I am grateful that the producers and the entertainment community have come together to pay tribute to Helena's final work. I mean, I don't really know what to say to that. It sounds like her widower is uh, moving on and production will, will finish and people will actually get to see this movie. And I have a feeling that if he had stuck to his original lawsuit, that probably wouldn't be happening anytime soon. And we, no one may ever get to see it. So, so I don't really, I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have to say for myself, if something like that happened to me and I died while making a movie, I would want the movie to get finished and people to see my work. I don't know. The only comp in this neighborhood is The Crow. And with The Crow, we all knew Brandon Lee died a year before that movie came out. And we knew that he died, again, a grotesque negligence on set. And I don't know. I mean, I am glad I saw The Crow. I'm glad I saw Brandon Lee's final work. I think that I'll probably feel that way about this. I'm assuming whatever cinematographer they get to come on and finish it will honor her vision and what she was doing and her approach to the material. But also that person's just, they're going to be a cinematographer. They're going to do their their thing too. I don't honestly know anything about the movie itself. I know it's a Western, you know, Westerns are always odd. I hope that they learned their lesson and they don't use an armor at all. (laughs) You know, get airsoft guns and hire a VFX person and do muzzle flash and post. You don't need it. You don't, I, I can't say it enough. I will shout it to the heavens. You don't need blanks on a movie set ever. You do not need them. I, I hope that it's not just that they learn their lesson. I hope that this is a cautionary tale to everyone making a movie going forward. I hope that this is actually something that is not repeated. It's scary that that it's already happened, at least to our knowledge, twice. And I, I know other people who have been you know, hit by blank shrapnel and things like that. They were not oh, you know, killed, but like all tons we don't, of accidents. We don't, ever even t- yeah. we don't talk yeah. about that with blanks, but it's like that is completely common if you're on a, on a film set or a TV set where they're shooting off blanks to have a stray piece of shrapnel hit you, hit a piece of gear. We don't talk about just the when everything's done perfectly well. We don't talk about the complete loss of time to, to endless safety meetings. And for what? For one frame of muzzle flash and a slightly added piece of realism that's easy to recreate. And a whole lot of people wearing earplugs. You don't even need earplugs if you go the no, other way. No, you got to yeah. pass out. No, people who haven't worked on those kinds of shoots don't realize. If you're going to do a scene with blank gunfire, what you're going to have is the first AD and the armor are going to come out. And it's going to be like, okay, she 
kicks in the door and turns to her left and fires twice and turns to her right and fires once. There's three blanks in this gun and everybody and, and the, you know, the camera people, the AD, the director, everybody kind of like, okay, cool. And then they pass out earplugs. Then they put plexiglass in front of the camera. If it's in front of the lens, uh, they put plywood up in front of the entire crew. Who's anywhere near it. And you will lose 30 to 45 minutes of shooting time every single time, every time this happens. <sighs> Well, anyway, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't, not sure where, where, where to go from that. It's like, it's a horrible, shitty, terrible thing that that's happened to Helena and her family. And there's this interesting update that happens right now. And I don't know exactly how I'm left feeling about it, but it's, it's what her estate uh, wants most. And that's, that's what, where it's going to be. So I think that's totally fair. And I do think they should finish the movie. Will I personally see it? I don't know. Yeah, I never saw that the, the the movie with the train accident and Sarah Jones. I I'm I'm sorry. I'm oh, blank. they never got they never got finished. Oh, they, I, that I, got that got shut down and bagged. That yeah, movie never got finished. Yeah, I it was I know it was the Almond Brothers movie. I can't. I yeah, blocked Midnight Rider. Midnight Rider. That's right. I yeah. I was gonna say I didn't know what happened to that, but didn't uh, didn't the director go to jail too? Wasn't there? I mean, there was like the director and I think either one of the producers. Yeah, I think yeah. I think the director and one of the producers went to jail. Yeah. And I think that with that as a precedent, we could have very easily seen something similar happen happen here. But that, that clearly isn't going to happen. I mean, so. there was talk of Alec Baldwin possibly going to jail. He This wasn't the first time Alec Baldwin had walked on a film set and someone handed him a gun. He knows the protocol that the armor walks on set, shows everybody the gun, shows them how many bullets are in the gun or blanks, excuse me, oops, yeah, yes. blanks, blanks, shows them how many rounds are in the gun. The first AD and the uh, actor handling the gun and any other actor in the scene are free to inspect it. Or crew. And then once, once it's in his hand, then it's considered hot and nothing happens. The fact that the armor, I mean, like I heard rumors that the armor had real bullets on set and was doing target practice between scenes. It, it's, if, it's impossible to know, know what's true or not, but the, the armor is now claiming that the blank manufacturer is to blame for all this. So that's what their lawyer is saying. It'd be the first time I'd ever heard that in my entire life. Yeah. But even if that's true, yeah, Alec Baldwin should have known goddamn well not to point that gun at somebody because he would have looked in the chamber and made sure that it was empty. And when he saw that there was anything in there, you wouldn't you would not point a blank at somebody like you would. You're not supposed a, to. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've seen plenty of actors do it. Actors have done it to me. So, yeah, it's not it's not it's not appropriate. It's, it's horrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, to me, uh, every single time a commercial for Airsoft use Airsoft guns. They look like the real thing. Add muzzle flash and post. Nobody can get hurt unless you like throw the gun at someone's face. All right, Ben. I think you've trod on this territory enough. Oh, uh, we should we should move on. But, I'm just getting started. Uh, I know you are. I can see your 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 you know your eyes are crazy now. Yeah, ah. your, your hair's on end. Uh, right, why don't we get to the interview? All right, here we go. Here's Charlie Seraf. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I'm here with Charlie Saroff. Thank you so much for coming on, Charlie. Uh, this is an amazing week for you because you shot the number one movie in the country, Smile, which everyone should go see. Oh, cool. thank you so much for having me, Ben. Um, yeah, it's it's really exciting. A little bit of information is is starting to get out there about um, where you know what was meant to happen with Smile, and that was that it was meant to go straight to streaming. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. When I, when I came on board, it was an exciting opportunity to still, you know, work. I, you know, I can talk a little bit about how I met Parker and how the project came about, but um, essentially he was sort of up from, from the start saying like, it's a 
most likely going to be a Paramount Plus film. And, you know, it was great. You know, it was his first feature. It was my fourth, but, you know, I'd, I'd sort of come out of an indie world and, you know, it was cool to, to sort of do something on a slightly bigger budget than I was used to. And I was, there was no shame in that. And then to jump ahead, it tested extremely well and Paramount got together and they thought, you know what, let's, let's take it, take our chances. And, you know, a lot of the marketing has been pretty intense, but yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a dream come true to have such a wide theatrical release, and for the most part, like people seem to be really um, there's a response, you know, they're they're, they're loving it, hating it, whatever. I don't care. There's a, there's a response there, and that's amazing. Just bringing people into the cinema, and um, you know, I've seen it a few times in the cinema now with a crowd, and just hearing hearing the squirms and the the laughter and the. And the jumps and all that, that's, it's awesome. Yeah. I know. It really is. I, I saw it with a friend of mine and she was squirming the whole time. What were uh, kind of the inspirations going into it? Yeah. Um, Park and I shared quite a lot of references and he, he had some um, strong references coming in that he shared with me. You know, there's that old film, Possession was one of them mm-hmm. where... I think it just had a digitally remastered release here in some small cinemas. It's actually quite hard to get. I had to buy two Blu-ray players just to be able to get it. He had a Blu-ray and he's like, watch this. And then, but it was awesome. It was this, um, it had Star Sam Neill. And it is this old, rough, crazy kind of out there horror that, you know, with a lot of like bold, but sort of rough camera moves and the color palette was sort of very muted. And that was just something that spoke to him a lot. And then, you know, some more contemporary films or slightly more contemporary, like Todd Haynes was actually a, um, a big influence oh, wow. on Parker. And I know that a lot of that doesn't, you know, really come through and smile, but there was a reference that I, I, I kind of dug up and, you know, he'd already seen it, but he was like really happy. I think it was sort of, you know, it was a moment where we realized we were on the same page and that's safe. Um, I, I don't know if you remember oh, that yeah. one. I have seen similar it, yeah. themes, you know, it's about mental illness and, and, uh, very, somebody finds himself very isolated and the set design, the colors, the lighting, just some of the composition. That was a, that was one that came to mind. Um, Gregory, Gregory Crutzen's photography was certainly a reference that we had in common that we sort of came to just the, the depth of the shots and the loneliness again and isolation of a particular series that he, he did. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of TV at the time. We, we, we were watching The Servant. Um, that was something that he wanted me to have, have a close look at just for, for the camera movement. I think um, Shyamalan and, and G.L. Arkles did a really good job with like blocking and, you know, movement around and, and you know, the, cap, the camera was really like a character in its own right. Things like that. So, yeah. Well, um, and it made me think of another movie shot by Mike Giolakis, which was It Follows. And I don't know how much of this is baked into it, how much of this was your contribution, but there was like often an inexplicable camera move that like felt from my point of view as an audience, it's like we're looking at X, you know, we're looking at so-and-so and then the camera seems to have a mind of its own and it drifts somewhere else, often to the left. And that made me think a little bit about It Follows because It Follows would do those crazy circling shots. But it also reminded me of things like Rosemary's Baby. Well, that was another reference too. That's like one of all our favorite horror films. We watched that again, The Shining, you know, a lot of the classics. There's some Japanese horror. And, and then, you know, we're not, uh, it knows what it is. And like, and Parker is never shied away from the fact that it follows a formula that is... You know, you can see that in It Follows and The Ring and things like that. Um, the, ri- the Ring is another huge, The Ring, It Follows, Drag Me to Hell, Rosemary's Baby. Like, to me, it fits in with those movies. It, it Like, if I was programming a festival of movies, it would fit right in with all of those. For sure. There's some new and some fresh things in, in, in Smile, but it definitely has that kind of, you know, contagious, like, then we need to go and investigate. Then we need to try and figure it out. 
sometimes the ending isn't always happy. You know, I'm not giving anything away. Maybe it is happy. Maybe it isn't. But I haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely want to talk about your work on the relic too, or excuse me, on relic. It's just relic. That was also like I, as soon as I saw it and, and like looked you up, I was like, oh, oh my god, I love relic. It's oh, such thanks. A movie. Yeah, and I think they really helped me get this one. Parker had seen that, and I, I do love shooting horror as I do other genres um, as well. Like I just love cinema. But I think like when I first read Smile, it was um, it was a page turner and it was fun and it was gory and it was dark and you know, there's a couple of scenes in there. Where I'm like, Parker, you're, a, you're you're really going there. Like, that's a dark, <laughs> that's a dark scene, man. And but I, that's that was awesome. It, it was bold. So yeah, I don't know. Well, well, let me ask you because I I was unaware that it was meant for streaming. Was there anything uh, while you were making it for streaming that is different than if you knew it was going to go to theaters? We kind of went the opposite. Shot in a fashion that it's more suited to the big screen. Just because it was most likely going to streaming, we didn't really think in like a smaller screen terms. Which, mm. you know, maybe we should have, but the aspect ratio is definitely a smaller screen friendly aspect ratio of two to one. Quite a lot of other films have come out recently and TV series that are in that aspect ratio. I've usually shot two, three, nine, whether it be anamorphic or a, or a, or a scopes like crop on spherical lenses. Um, yeah. And I quite enjoyed this aspect ratio. It's a little bit wider. It feels a little bit more like composition friendly in a sense that you can kind of like be a little bit bold with people putting in the edge of frame and things like that. But yeah, I guess that plays a little bit more on the television because it feels more of a screen. It's not 16.9, but you only have like much smaller bars at the top and bottom. And it plays well at the cinema. And there have been some notable films and series that have come out in that aspect ratio. But yeah, essentially, you know, now it has gone to the cinema and it's playing in some big, you know, like I, I saw it in Dolby the other day. And um, I'm, I'm guessing it's a megaplex, you know, some of the big super screens around um, the world and stuff like that. And it's good to know that it holds up really nicely on that. I, I saw it on a, well, it, it's the uh, the artist formerly known as the Sherman Oaks Galleria, but like on their biggest screen. And it looked amazing. It, it really, the, it, it looked beautiful. Oh, good. I'm um, thanks. I'm happy to hear that. When I first heard, when I first saw the trailer for this movie and heard the concept, I'm like, that is brilliant. I can't believe, like, it's one of those ideas that I, I think a lot of people probably have, which is like, why didn't I think of that? It's so like some of the best ideas feel like, oh, I, I should have thought of that. But then when you see it, it's like the smiles are, it's creepy. Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah. It was there a thought, a testing process, a specific lensing, a, a specific a, approach that you took specifically to make the smiles themselves of the title so goddamn creepy. Good question. Um, I'll back up a little bit and just say that, that I'm glad you felt that from the trailer, but I found one of the, and you know, the Parker found this quite amusing too, was this, that there was a lot of comparisons to Truth or Dare and the trailer kind of set it up as, it, it, as far as the trailer goes. But the film was actually originally called Something's Wrong With Rose, a title I kind of liked, to be honest. When it tested really well and Paramount decided to take it theatrical, obviously marketing were all over it and they were like, how do we make it more... You know, it is a punchy. Bit, it's a punchy title. And punchy it's a, title. It's, exactly. It's a catchy title. Yeah, I think maybe I was just used to something's wrong with Rose, and it had a bit of an old school feel to it. You know, coming yeah. back to some of those old references and seventies and eighties horrors and stuff. They had to sometimes yeah. let, longer. Let's scare Jessica to death. That kind of that thing. type of thing. Yeah. So um, when it became Smile, it took a little bit of time to get used to, it, but then obviously it's it works. And to answer your question, is that smiles are a big motif. There are a big motif in the in the film, and they're, and they're like it's. It's also a bit of a metaphor for the mask that we all wear when sometimes things are happy. You know, what do you do to cover it up? You kind of smile and stuff like that. So that's where it sort of comes from. But there wasn't as much of it, I guess, in the film as what a lot of people thought it was going to be. Just a bunch of all creepy people everywhere, like smiling, smiling, smiling. So 
Um, when we shot it, like the smiles were extremely important, but it wasn't necessarily something that we were like, it has to be done a certain way. They're all in different situations and light and lenses. So I wouldn't say that there was a particular method for each smile. It was more about what just sort of felt right at the time. Um, so yeah, they're all a bit different, I think. Yeah. No, it's interesting that, that, uh, you know, it's kind of funny actually now thinking about it. Like if I didn't walk in with the movie title smile in my head, at no point was I like, I'm, there aren't enough smiles. I, I feel cheated, but it doesn't, uh, when you say it, it's like, oh yeah, it's not like, you know, if you're seeing uh, Dawn of the Dead, you're going to see lots of zombies. It's not ever present, but actually I love that because I felt like it was building the characters, building the story. Like it felt like the character development and stuff had a little bit of breathing room in the same way that a Rosemary's Baby or a Drag Me to Hell kind of movie does, or The Ring, where, because so much of the movie is you're with someone and you're seeing it from their point of view and everyone thinks they've lost their mind and you don't know for sure if they have or if they haven't. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm really happy that we're able to let some shots and things play out. We tried to build that into our shots where things can sort of breathe a bit and, and loiter. Yeah, it didn't feel, it, it never felt cutty or I thought the pacing was right on and it delivered those jolts when it needed to. It wasn't uh, a slow burn necessarily. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, and I, yeah, we wanted, you know, when we moved the camera and held on things, we, we wanted everything to be for a reason. You know, you don't always get it right. Like it's, we're all, every film you learn something, but um, yeah, that was the intention as well. It's just to, we wanted a lot of camera movement. We wanted it to be a lurking presence and to sort of really like help sometimes direct the audience to where they should be and look or not, you know, the, you know, to contradict that, sometimes you would deliberately, you know, deter them away <laughs> from that. But that was something I really enjoyed about working with Parker. He uh, kind of has an idea about how to build tension and like, and he wants everything to be there for a reason. And I think that's really admirable. So it was fun to collaborate with him on that. Well, and, I, and I'd like to kind of ask you about the sort of the inexplicable camera movement. And sometimes it was just a pan or something. And obviously it's, it's very it's very intentional. But like what were kind of your rules? What was the, the ground rules for like when you would do that kind of stuff? Because, you know, like when you do that, that in the editing bay, it might tie your hands. You're not going to be in regular coverage now because this shot is about the point of view of that shot. And it's giving you only that. Yep. Which I love. Um, I think it's being a little bit more bold and I hope to do more films like that where you just sort of own it. You know, it, mm. it, it's important to get a few little get out of jail free things at this point. Sometimes I think like where if you, if you, if you do something like that, maybe having an insert or another way, like, you know, just as a bit of a safety net, especially if you need to save time. But yeah, as far as rules go, moving the camera for a reason and sort of really building up suspense, you know, a lot of wide lenses, we did, we barely went telephoto. That was like a, a, an approach that we really wanted. We wanted Rose to feel really isolated in the space, but the audience to be able to really see a lot around her. One of the things is barely an over the shoulder. I don't think there's a single over the shoulder shot in Rose. And, you know, uh, compared to other films I've done where so much of it lives in that world, we never wanted Rose with anybody else or we never want anyone connected. You know, there's only a couple of shots where I think you might see the back of like Rose's head and some other characters, but then even then we might have put her in a spot where you know, she walks in and, and Trevor and Madeline are there to confront her about, you know, things. And we wanted her to be right in the middle of the two, you know, sort of simplify that, you know, she's in between them and they're in between her and, and that, things like that. So I guess just scene by scene, it's like, what, what are we trying to say here? What's Rose's state of mind? How separated is she from all these other people? Yeah, she's basically always on her own. Well, and and like uh, we've never had Roger Deakins on the show, but that's a Coen Brothers kind of move is to kind of put the camera between the characters yeah. and not do over the shoulders. Are there any when you when you cover a scene like that, are there any challenges that come about because you don't have that shoulder to tie everyone together? You don't feel their physical proximity to each other? 
I mean, I guess that's a subjective thing because sometimes you, you could argue that, oh, you know, they might've just picked that up another day and like no one's there and, you know, it could be a different yeah. location or a pickup or something like that. But not really, because there's usually a wide shot and we wanted the separation there. I don't know. We, we, I think we still have them. It's not like everything lives in those sort of close-ups. So I don't think we really miss that. Sometimes it can help the editor in a way where some over the shoulders, if someone's leaning a certain way or doing something, it can be a little hard to cut back and forth between because you do see both people in frame, whereas this is a bit cleaner. I don't, I personally don't feel like it, it caused any issues. I, I kind of like the approach. And, and as you say, like, well, you know, Roger speaks a lot to that in Coen Brothers films and everything. And, I, you know, that's, he's obviously an idol of mine, like so many yeah. cinematographers out there. He's, he's, of he's, course. Brilliant. <laughs> he's brilliant. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, I've listened to a lot of interviews and, and, and um, taken a lot of his ideas on board and uh, amongst other DPs. And, and that was one that sat with me. And when, when we were in prep together, like Parker and I were shot listing and that was something that was like, we kind of got excited about. It's like, hang on, like, why? logical thing we're well, not logical but like a, an obvious thing that we could do is when people are sitting together and talking to one another is just be over their shoulder and there's nothing wrong with that I, i'm sure I'll, my next film might have that and that's great but in this case we just didn't want that we wanted her to be just on her own the whole time so no and it's and it's something i wasn't consciously aware of and when you're saying it i'm like kind of going back through the movie in my head i'm like yeah and i feel like that actually underscores kind of that rosemary's baby feeling of like we're she's alone we're alone with her and we're alone with her. And then as to your work, it's like the point of view of the camera is kind of messing with us. Like the point of view of the camera is like making us look at, at horrifying things. Like the camera's, in, whoever's point of view we're in is not, the only person we really trust is her, you know? Yeah. No, cool. <laughs> and you know what? I'm sort of glad that you didn't pick up on that. Cause I think that's the, that's what we, you want. You don't, in a lot of ways, you don't really want to bring attention to all those sorts of rules. You want it to be a subconscious thing. So well, that's great. I didn't, we didn't want to do anything that's too like, oh, I see what they're doing there. Like, you know, there might be some things in the film because, again, it knows what it is and it wants to sort of be a little bit, in, you know, crazy and like a little maybe pay homage to different films from different areas, like decades and yeah. things like that. So I'm not going to say everything in it is, um, you know, there's nothing obvious in it, but at the same time, little rules like that, I think it's great if people don't necessarily pick them up. And it's just, um, yeah, it's sort of on a different layer. So tell me how it came about that you met Parker, the director on this. Yeah, it was one of those lucky encounters where, you know, when people say you should just show up to events and like somebody that's like, I love doing that, but I'm like, can be a bit of an introvert and going out to things all the time and schmoozing and meeting people is always a bit of a, oh God, but it's that sort of industry. But yep. it was actually, I was in, I was going to a uh, South by Southwest. It was like a pre-event mixer thing that they put on in LA. And I think they do it in other cities like New York and stuff where a lot of filmmakers live and and it was basically just a meet and you meet the other filmmakers and they talk to you about your passes and what the thing is. And it was a cool little thing that South by Southwest did. This was in 2020. And I get there early. Like, um, I had Relic playing and another film, Pink Skies Ahead. Oh, wait. And so, th so this is the South by that got canceled, right? What, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're all there and we're all excited. And I walk in, I'm there early. I was actually meeting Natalie there and she was like, I'm running a bit late. Can you come to this thing though? And I'm like, yeah, cool. Why not get there thinking it was going to be a little bit more of like a party and there might be some alcohol and like, it'll be a bit more chill. And you know, and I get in there and it's a bright room, like at a WeWork and, and it was just everyone standing around going, oh, okay. And, and it was a bit awkward. And then Parker was standing right next to me and I sort of was like, all right, here we go. Hey, hey man, how's it going? You know, what are you here for? And yeah. then we, <laughs> we started to shoot the shit. And he uh, had mentioned that he had a, his short in, um, Laura hasn't slept. And, you know, I mentioned I had Relic in and Pink Skies. And I think he'd seen Relic and being a horror fan, he was sort of interested in it or he'd heard about Relic. I don't know if he'd seen it, but 
then we just got talking and got along. And then we planned to meet at South by Southwest. And I was like, I really want to come and see your film. And he was like, likewise. And, you know, it's cool that, you know, I think we, we just got along. And, and then, you know, history, as we all know, that year was a bit of a weird one. And then they, um, everything sort of canceled and we were all in lockdown and, but the event did go online. And then I was, and we kept in touch throughout the year. And I was really happy to see that it won, his short film won one of the Grand Jury Awards. And I think it won another like cool award for the poster design, which was really cool. And it just did really well. Like, and then, yeah, we kept in touch about that. I was like, congrats, dude. And then eventually when we, we all started to head out a little bit, we grabbed a beer and he mentioned that his feature got picked up to by Paramount and Temple Hill. And I was like, super excited about it. Um, that's great. And then he was like, yeah, and I'm, I'd like to consider you as DP and I'm going to send you the script. And I was like... Oh cool. yeah, cool. Amazing. Wow. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, it was just this like chance encounter. Like I, I think he, you know, he's one of those guys that likes to find collab, like team members and collaborators that he can get along with. I think it's really important to him and to me and to everybody that it's not just a, yeah, it's sort of, you know, oh, that person's works good. Like he would have gone through that process as well, but I guess, cause we just sort of met and we knew that we could hang out and have a good time. And then also I was into the film and we had similar tastes and sensibilities. I was um, fortunate enough to be offered it. So yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. It just goes to show, you know, you, things can happen in all the sorts of ways, but sometimes you just got to show up and talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> go to the mixer. I know what that's like. Like I go to the, like these meetings at the director's guild and it's just like, oh God, like I don't know anyone. And it's always so hard to start a conversation, but you never know. You never know where it's going to lead you. So it's worth going. Yeah. No, it can be hard sometimes, but you never know. Yeah. So. Um, and then, you know, other things, I, an exciting thing we got to do with the film, photo cam. So we had a, we've got a brilliant, we had a brilliant colorist called Dave Cole. He's based in here in LA at, at photo cam and he works a lot with Danny and Greg Fraser on, he did June, he did Matt Reeves, like Batman and, and a, lot, a lot of smaller indies like Minari and, um, <laughs> uh, and also, you know, I thought you were saying small, small indies, indies like, oh, like Batman and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> and he just does these, the tiny little films, you know, half the films, yeah. No, but he's got like a, such a, a, a great range of experience with uh, working on these big masterpiece blockbusters and then, but he'll also do some small indies and uh, a cool thing that Photocam does and like we, both Parker and I love film and celluloid and, but don't get me wrong, I don't want to, I don't want this to be like one of those film versus digital things. Like I'm not, I'm not going to speak to that. I love, I love both. They both have their place and on, I hope to shoot films on film and I hope to shoot more films on digital and, and whatever the new technology is like, you know, yeah. telepathic kind of like whatever. <laughs> and who knows where we're I going. Can, I, I can't wait to shoot on telepathic. Yeah, media. yeah, yeah. It's yeah, coming. That's, that's great. But yeah, so when we found out it got picked up to go theatrical, uh, he'd been talking about this process called Shift AI that, that Photocam have. And that's um, essentially laser printing um, the digital image to film and rescanning it. You know, that isn't necessarily the newest thing. It's been done for a while, especially no, when- it's, it's what Greg Fraser did on Dune. Exactly, yep. So, you know, long story short, we did the same thing, like it, it, in a different sort oh, of wow. way. So uh, yeah, I was, I was super stoked to have some celluloid and to be brought into the film. And it's subtle, like we didn't want, there's all these different ways that you can go about it in different stocks. And we, had, we ended up going to like a very slow one ASA intermediate stock into negative stock and like, we didn't want it to be like, whoa, it's film, look at all the grain. It's more about the other things about the texture and the roll off and the, what it can do to colors and, and, and a bit of texture and grain. The Alexa, 6, uh, the Alexa 65 is a very clean camera. So just bringing a little something to it like that. So it, that was a real treat. And I do think it makes a difference. Most people probably won't notice because it isn't meant to be, you know, rammed down your throat. You know, face like, like look, something to look like some vintage piece or like really 
some sort of like old school filmic thing, but that was a really cool thing to be able to do actually. And I was really excited about that. So sort of bringing like, I'm a big fan of bringing old technology and mixing it with new and sort of seeing what you can get. And it's not necessarily to make the film look like film. It's like, it takes on its own thing. You're mixing things. And then within that, you've got all this new control. So I'm expecting like, I'm a big proponent of people who want to shoot on film and I hope it never goes away. And I hope, you know, like I'm, I'm all about that, but it is, it is another option. It's another tool in the toolbox. And, and I think that was a, yeah, that was a really cool thing to be able to do. Well, let me ask you this though. Did you do any kind of like a B looking at like what could be done simply in resolve or whatever grading environment you're in versus doing the film out and the retransfer, uh, you know, cause we had Greg on the show and he told us about doing that on Dune and it's like, you know, you're making Dune, you're Greg Fraser, you can kind of do whatever you want. But before you did it, did you look to see like how far could they make it look like that without doing the film out. I, I'm all for doing the film out too. I'm not we, like- I'm We not. 100% did. And Dave, um, Cole, again, did a great job emulating. He's got like a, he's got all these methods to be able to sort of bring a lot of that. And that's layering grain and doing things with like, you know, lens distortion. And it's not, you know, a lot of people think it, and, and I've done this for on projects in the past where you simply just layer film grain over the image. And it can look great. I feel like it, you know, if it, especially if it's a little bit more subtle and it's done properly, there's all sorts of tools out there. I know there's, um, Live Grain is a, is a program here that, you know, a gentleman based, I think Sonny has it here in LA and it's, it's been used on a lot of, um, I think it was used on the Joker and things like that. And it looks great. Oh, wow. Um, you can definitely emulate film by in, in, in the digital realm. And, and, and I think that's a, it's great as well. What we did a side by side and we just found that it still had this liveliness to it and the way that the colors kind of like, I, yeah, it was still just a bit different. It's not a board just about a looking like film. It's about just finding new ways of getting different looks. Melvin, yeah, yeah. You know, new technology, old technology, just film coming to that equation. It's like no, digital it totally software. Makes sense. It's great. You know, I think all that stuff's good. Like it's, yeah, it was exciting. And on a subconscious level, maybe it just felt right. You know, even like the way the music works in the movie. And I know we're not a music podcast, but like the music and the, and the sound design had kind of a, not a, not a heavy handedly retro thing but sort of a nod to the kind of music you might have heard in the 70s horror which film. is what we loved about it. and i know that like christabel um amazing composer you might know his work from the white lotus i think he won the emmy mm. for that like he oh, wow. that, that awesome kind of um track that the white lotus had throughout and he's done a lot of other great things but yeah he i thought he did a really cool job so, uh, but enough about everyone else. Let's talk more about you. I always want to know when in your life, what was the moment, if, if you have a moment or a period of your life where it occurred to you that being a cinematographer was a thing you could pursue and you decided to kind of steer your life down the path that you're currently yep. on? I think I have to give a lot of credit to skateboarding. I, I was right into skateboarding <laughs> as a kid and a teenager. That was like what I wanted to do the most out of anything. That was my, um, I, yeah, I, I didn't make the cut, but like, you know, to be a professional skateboarder and, and, yeah. and do that was like, that was kind of a dream through nearly all of high school. Um, I didn't even get remotely close, like, but I loved it. I, you know, I was okay, but yeah, compared to what they're doing, <laughs> it's just no. <laughs> but one of the things that, um, that's really big within that culture is the video production side of it. Like you watch, you know, now, you know, this was before I was in a, an Olympic sport and, and there is so much of it that's even televised and things. And, you know, back then, you know, growing up in the nineties, it was, um, it was, it was about magazines and videos. Um, there was less competition. There was competitions, but they weren't as mainstream. Like X games yeah. kind of took that off in the late nineties and. So during the 90s, I was watching a lot of skate videos that went hand in hand with music. And a lot of these, the people creating them also branched out into to different sorts of videos, whether it be skits or just artistic pieces that would form a part of these skate videos. And, and someone that we all know that um, is, you know, comes to mind is Spike Jones. 
I was about um, to ask, like in the back of my mind, when you started talking about that, I was like, didn't Spike Jones start out as a skateboard video guy? Exactly. Yeah. And people like that, you know, and then a bit later you had the CKY guys and the Jackass guys and things like that. And they were yeah. all like skateboarding was the core, but then they would do little skits and videos and put it to music. And, and that kind of got me really interested in it. Um, so I got a, you know, I, I got a camcorder and I was filming, filming friends and, and I just really was interested in that side of things. And then, um, you know, I didn't go straight to college after school. I kind of, um, you know, I wanted to travel and <laughs> still skateboard and I worked like full-time, part-time in different jobs, but I, I sort of saved up to travel. And, and then when I came back, I went to a film school in Melbourne in Australia. And um, there I was like, even then I wasn't quite sure that I wanted to be a cinematographer. To be honest, I didn't even completely know what a cinematographer was. Like I was into camera and filming and video and, I, you know, basic editing and things like that. I never really wanted to be a director or writer though. I knew that from the start. I was more into the, to the videography side of it and the editing side and stuff like that. I mean, there was definitely moments where I thought being a director could be cool and you know that that whole all-encompassing I want to be a filmmaker thing sort of was played a big part of it but yeah I remember going to film school and we were kind of all, every, all the students were asked like you know what we'd like to do and like 90% of the people wanted to be writers and directors and I remember being like oh I think I really like them all the camera side of things and editing and things like that and so I sort of knew early on that that was where my passion was and I actually had a cousin that was an editor up in Sydney and, and doing more TV stuff at the time. Um, so I was, yeah, I did a bit of work experience with him and then friends at film school, like asked me to shoot a lot of their short films. And then somehow I got a bit of a reputation for, for, for liking camera and being okay at it. So I think just the fact that I didn't want to be a director, a lot, a lot of people found that kind of comforting and being like, yeah, do you want a camera of mine? And like, <laughs> yeah, there, there was a bit of that. Um, so starting to shoot more music videos and small commercials and short films. And I kept doing that. And that's where I was able to see like what, DPs were doing on bigger things. And I was like, I kind of got a bit more of a sense of what a cinematographer does. But yeah, one of my biggest breaks to date, probably my biggest break, which ended up landing me smile and things like that, um, was one of the directors I started working with was Natalie Erica James, who I did a bunch of her short films. And one of those short films was a film called Creswick that was a proof of concept for the feature film Relic. I love that movie. I love that movie so much. Thanks, man. Um, so yeah, we, we developed a, you know, a good working relationship and, um, I was shooting some other things for her, other short films and music videos and stuff. And when she was given the, um, the opportunity to shoot Relic, unfortunately, initially I was told I couldn't do it because I didn't have any feature film credits. And, you know, they, you know, with the way funding bodies and all the finance stuff works, they, they mm -hmm. wanted to hedge their bets and team her up with somebody more experienced. And, you know, it hurt for a while. And, but like, as fate would have it, it sort of came around in my favor when things didn't really work out with um, finding somebody else. And, you know, uh, fortunately some of the producers actually based here in the States were backed me on it, which I'm very grateful for. So I was able to do it quite last minute, which was difficult because we didn't really prep much, but like at all. Oh, really? Think, yeah, things came, but we'd already developed like so much of a working style. And, like, you know, when you've got a shorthand with people, like, you know, we, we, we just got into it. And fortunately that film did quite well. And, you know, I went to Sundance and that was a massive break. And that kind of um, got me more, you know, noticed by people like Parker, um, who had seen Relics. And when I, when I met him, he'd remembered that. And I think it went a long way. Um, and then after Relic, I, you know, I did a couple other films. One that's actually still to come out, hopefully next year, was more of a neo-Western drama, actually. It's very different. So I'm excited for that. As much as I love doing horror and hope to continue working with people like Parker and that. And it's, it's another, yeah, it's just different. I want, I want to keep mixing it up and doing, working with, in different styles. So... And then, yeah, and then Relic also helped me get um, Pink Skies Ahead, which again is like a 
more of a coming of age comedy drama. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It so couldn't be more different than from Relic. But l- like, let's talk a little bit about Relic though, because that is just an outrageously atmospheric horror film. It's pretty amazing. There's a quote. I want to say it was Wes Craven who said something to the effect of, "His movies were all about two houses: the house you grew up in and the house that is your body." And when I was watching Relic, I kept thinking about that. Yeah, it was because a, because it's so because true. the house obviously was the body. Like there was something not anthropomorphic about the house but but it was you know like the rot within, within the, the house yep, and, and the mold and just that the kept growing and yeah 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 and you know would, a lot of us have experienced this but seeing somebody go through those illnesses those type of illnesses like it's essentially what happens like it it slowly infects and grows and and then it affects everyone around you and you know and which which it did in yeah. relic you know that was the idea about how it drew emily the daughter and bella the granddaughter into that space it's like you know yes you, you it it's yeah, you're not the only one that's been affected. It really takes everyone down around you and it's horrific. So but there, yeah, that's sort of how that's sort of the story. That's how it started. Relic was definitely my um leg up in the feature film world, which was the dream, you know, like as much yeah. as um I love doing all the sort of more you know, skateboardy kind of stuff and that turned into <laughs> lifestyle TV. And I still shoot commercials and music videos now. Like that's 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 awesome. I, I love all of that. Um but feature films is definitely you know, the dream. So I, I also just kind of want to talk about the very interesting pivot you did from Relic to Pink Skies Ahead, which, like we were saying, could not be a more different film in tone and style and look. And it's coming of age and it's very emotional and it's very colorful and it's kind of kind of bright. So how did it come about that off of the strength of Relic that you were or, or was it off the strength of Relic that you were uh, recommended for Pink Skies Ahead or found yourself on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, Relic um, definitely helped. So how it all came about is that I met the producers, Greg Gilgreath and Adam Hendricks from Divide and Conquer. And we just kind of chatted for a fair while. They do a lot of horror films, but when this one came up and Kelly Oxford was directing and yeah, it, when it came up and uh, met with Kelly and we, like, I, I love all, a lot of those sorts of like coming of age dramas and different films. And the nineties was like a really exciting period to be working in, you know, growing up in the nineties and being into like different sorts of music from then and grunge and the fashion and and seeing so many films shot in LA at that point too. It was really cool. I was excited to do a film in, in Los Angeles. So when, um, when it came up and I heard it was going to shoot here, I thought that'd be really fun and exciting. And yeah, like it, I don't know, again, it's just breaking it down and like looking at references and finding things you like and the the director likes and then kind of going from there. It wasn't, if anything, it was a little refreshing coming from something really dark into something more bright and poppy and working Mm. with lots of color and, and then, yeah. And then going back to that with smile and then, you know, going, doing this sort of Western and up in Montana has a completely different look again. And it's all exciting. Keeps things fresh. So to me, it doesn't really feel like much of a pivot. You might change up things a little bit with how you like things and how much light you let in and, and you know, how much fill light you let in. But I, I find a lot of it's very similar principles and so much of it's to do with the setting and, and the locations and the production design that has a massive part of it. Like you probably find that a lot has a very similar stuff. Pink Scars and Relic probably have very similar types of lighting and diffusion <laughs> and direction. To be honest, like it's more how much of that you kind of open up to and, and the production design is very different and the grade's very different and the lookup table is very different. But I think there probably is a style within it that the lighting style, particularly like, you know, Pink's Cars Ahead was a lot smaller. We didn't have long, we had to shoot the whole thing in about 20 days and we're running around. There's oh, wow. yeah, one or two locations a day. So we were a little bit limited with how we can move the camera. It's, it's a little bit more of a sit down and like, you know, talking head kind of film. Like, you know, I'm proud of it and uh, I think it's cool, but, but there was that limitation and that's something I, I really felt with that after doing Relic, which was a bit bigger and a bit longer. Um, you never have enough time, but yeah, 20 days is, is pretty hard. Um, so when I hear people doing films in less, I'm just like, Phew. wow, you know, you got to move so quick. But I wouldn't say there's uh, too much of a difference between the approach 
yeah, you break things down in a very similar manner. Well, cool. Well, we're about out of time right now, but uh, before we go, where can people find your work online if they want to see more of your work? Uh, you know, definitely go see Smile in the theater, but like, where else can people see your stuff? Sure. Um, I do have a website. It's just my name, charliesaroff.com. Um, as far as like, you know, the, my other films, Relic and Pink Skies, they're online. At the moment, you could find them on Amazon and Apple and the, the most of the usual suspects. I think I saw it on Shutter, if I'm not oh, great. mistaken. Yeah, but I, I could be wrong. Yep, cool. Uh, Smile's obviously at the cinema right now. But yeah, Instagram, I'm on Instagram, it's just under my name. That's probably the best bet. And I'm, I'm, anyone wants to, like, if anyone has any specific questions about anything, like, I'll do my, like, I'm more than happy to just hit me up on something. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to help. I've been fortunate in having, like, I think within the cinematography community, like, we're lucky that a lot of us all like to help each other. And, it's not like a secret club in a lot of ways. I feel like everyone's like, you know, I think we have a sure want to share each other's knowledge. And I've been yeah. lucky to have a lot of people that I can hit up and they've, you know, helped me out a lot. So if I could ever do that in a small way in the future, I'm more than happy to. So. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've noticed doing this podcast is how generous most cinematographers are with giving uh, us time and coming in here and talking to us and telling us amazing stuff. And, and most of them are, are really forthcoming and want to help the next generation of people coming up. So that's very awesome. Thank yeah. you for saying that. And, well, thank, and Ben, like, thanks for doing this podcast. Like, it's great that we can all log on and listen to all these different people, you know, from around the world talking about different sorts of projects. So credit to you. Oh, no, yeah. Well... The credit goes to our producer and Ilya. But thank you so much for coming on. And uh, when you can talk about the, the upcoming project, let us know. We'll, we'll yeah, have you back that'd on. that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. So that was Charlie Seroff. Uh, Charlie, as, as he talked about, he's off. He's got a new film that he's working on. He couldn't talk too much about it. Sounds really cool, though. So maybe we'll bring him back when, uh, when he's got that, that all done. Hey, Ben, uh, you'll never guess what time it is now. It is ice cream 30. <laughs> ice cream 30. How did you know? <laughs> yeah, it's always ice cream 30 in my life. We got to thank one of our sponsors. We got to thank the fine folks over at Airy. Airy, maker of uh, incredible cameras, lenses, and lighting equipment, predominantly for the industry, amongst other things like stabilized remote heads and you name it. Follow, follow foci. I think it's just follow focuses. <laughs> yes, exactly. Follows focus, like attorneys general. Well, at the uh, 74th Engineering, Science, and Technology Emmy Awards ceremony, which just happened a little over a week ago in Los Angeles, Aerie was honored with the Philo T. Farnsworth Corporate Achievement Award. Uh, are you familiar with Philo T. Farnsworth? I, I'm not, but I love that name. That's a great name. It, it is, sounds it, like somebody from Futurama. It, it, well, uh, Farnsworth, that, that's where the name was stolen from by Futurama. Philo is credited with the inventor of television. So, uh, you know, oh. uh, yeah, it's anyway. So they, the Academy wonderfully has a uh, award, which, you know, is, is in his name. And it, this year it was bestowed to Ari, which, you know, let me tell you, they're, they're super d deserving. They, they, they've been doing this for a hundred years and they have mm. really, really incredible technology. And I'm just going to, you know, rattle off here a few of the Emmy Award winners, which all used Airy capture technology uh, and serviced by the Airy rental department. And I'm talking about shows like Succession, Ted Lasso, White Lotus, 
euphoria. I mean, it, the list kind of goes, just goes on and on. It's really incredible. If you are not familiar with Ari, you are familiar with Ari. You actually yeah. just don't know it that you are familiar with Ari. And we're all uh, just living in Ari's world. We just don't know it yet. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you, Ari, for sponsoring the show. We really appreciate it. And uh, go check out Succession or uh, Euphoria oh or Ted Lasso. Any of the, any of this stuff. This is all this is all great stuff. Check out Ted Lasso. It was uh, created and co-stars a friend of mine. That's right, Brendan Hunt. Yeah. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it's uh, short end time. What is your obsession this week? What are you What are you all about? I kind of went down a weird wormhole the other day, and I'd like to share it with everyone because I think that it's maybe a turducken of uh, of, of Ooh, short ends. A turducken of short ends. I love it. So, uh, scriptation, which we've talked about on here quite a bit, and I've become quite a fan of it after uh, it was Byron Warner, right, who, mm-hmm. who yeah. first even on our show introduced me to the idea of scriptation. Now I can't imagine doing production without it. I did a production a few weeks ago, went totally paperless, used scriptation for everything. It went very, very smoothly. I love just having an iPad. Anyway, I subscribe to their YouTube channel, you know, because why not? And I think they have an awesome product. And they had a Scriptation Pro Series directing episodic television with Pete Chapman. And he's a TV director and he's really cool. And uh, you can go like uh, to get the full seminar, you have to pay money, but you can watch on YouTube. uh, It's like a 20 minute thing that he did that's full of information. And one of the things that he talked about is the one of the books that kind of set him on his path. Hmm. What book is that? It is called Directors Tell the Story, Master the Craft of Television and Film Directing. And it's written by Bethany Rooney and Mary Lou Belli. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. And him just kind of talking about it and what he said, I was like, you know, whenever I come across a cool book about directing, I think it's, we're not swamped with books about directing or cinematography for that matter. There aren't like, there's a bazillion YouTube channels and people who will tell you how to do it but like there aren't that many great in-depth books and so i uh, picked it up on the kindle store and uh it's a really fascinating book and it goes through a lot of um analytical processes that a tv director especially would need to break down scenes like i came across something i'd never heard of before called the cow chart or cow and that's Hmm. part of script analysis they go into a great deal of detail about script analysis so the cow thing is what a character says about themselves what others say about them and what the writer says about them and basically you make a list of that and you go through the script and kind of like whenever character says something about themselves or somebody else says something about them you just kind of put it in the chart and it's kind of a way to build sort of your expectations of what that character is something i've never done before but you bet your ass the next narrative thing i direct i'll definitely do it and there's there's a few other kind of breakdown tools that they give you in in the book I mean, like when I read Judith Weston's directing actors, it was like a lightning bolt into my brain and I've never had an experience. I've never had a book influence me nearly that much. I don't know that this book is that book again for me because I don't know that I will ever have that from a book about directing. Also, you know, I've done quite a bit of it since I read Judith Weston's book and also took her classes. Mm -hmm. So to me, some of it is obvious stuff, you know, where they're talking about the basic process of directing an episode of television or or, or making a movie, like a, a lot of that's demystified for me by now. But if you haven't done that, 
like if you're a student or you're looking into doing it or you're even I don't know. I mean, like there's definitely a lot that I can get out of this book that that stuff that I'd never heard of. So I feel like somebody who's closer to the beginning of the journey would definitely get all kinds of stuff about it. And I should mention also, and I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, although I did subscribe to it, that Pete Chapman has a podcast about directing episodic television. And he kind of talks about it. And he's like, I just want to answer all the questions I wish someone had told me before I started. And uh, he seems like a really cool guy. He's done some pretty awesome work. So this endeth my turducken of short end. <laughs> That's a great turducken, really. Yeah. It, it really is. It's wonderful. My short end this week is the Groundhog Day of sci-fi movies. You know what I'm talking about? It's called Edge of Tomorrow and came out in 2014. Stars oh, Tom yeah. Cruise and Emily Blunt. So sorry, no, no, nobody listening could see my blank <laughs> stare when you said that. But I was like yes, trying to. Yes, th- you're you're like you're like the Groundhog Day of science fiction. I'm, 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 I'm trying. I'm like I'm really I'm, I was really searching there for a second. So I saw the movie in the theater and I liked it and I remember yeah, liking it. I remember thinking that was a it was a really solid movie. But I had the opportunity on an airplane of all places to watch it again, and this time. You know, knowing what's going to happen and uh, having some thought about like the structure of all this and having helped a friend try to make a Groundhog Day like movie many, many years ago, I felt like I was going to be very, very <laughs> I know, conscious I, now. I know the film you're talking about. I know exactly. The, you, I knew you knew the film I was talking about. Oh, man. But, but uh, I, I didn't realize it was Christopher McQuarrie who did the, the screenplay. And it's Doug Lyman, of course, who yeah. was the director. But this movie is so tight. It's incredibly tight. There is not an ounce of fat in this movie, and it keeps the story being propelled. It's plot driven uh, step by step by step by step by step. But watching it, especially now not having seen it in in many years, I got to say it worked for me. And it was really wonderful seeing uh, Bill Paxton in a a wonderful little sort of cameo. He plays a, uh, you know, it's a character he's played before, but he plays it really well. And I have to say that Edge of Tomorrow, I have newfound respect for it. I think it's probably my favorite Tom Cruise movie now of all time. So I got to say, interesting. Yeah, I I really enjoyed this movie. And uh, even though I knew what was coming, I felt like uh, when you watch this movie, it is a lesson in editing. It's filmmaking at the highest level. It's an incredible craft. And even though, you know, you may not be uh, big into Tom Cruise or science fiction or anything, the way that this story is constructed, uh, I, I know I could watch it again. It's really well put together, and uh, I, I enjoyed every second of it, even on an airplane, which is saying something, because I generally hate watching anything I like on an airplane, because that, that experience is usually the worst. But this this that's, it's a real litmus test if I thoroughly enjoyed a movie on an airplane, and I did in this case. So if you never saw Edge of Tomorrow, you should definitely check it out. It's easy to find. It's on various streaming services, and uh, I know you can own it like on or rent it on Prime for like $3.99. So it's it's totally worth doing. If you've never seen the movie, if you did see it and you liked it, you might want to try it again because uh, I think you might see stuff in it you didn't see the last time. Wasn't the original title of that movie, All You Need Is Kill? Uh, that was the source material it was based on. I believe it was a Japanese graphic novel or something mm. like that. But yeah, I, I think that was the, the original source material. But it did get renamed in Europe, if I recall correctly, where it was called what was on the poster here as sort of like a tagline, Live, Die, Repeat. I think it actually got renamed Live, Die, Repeat in some territories. Mm. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's it's a really strong movie. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of I mean, like, I know it's fashionable to dislike Tom Cruise. And I <laughs> it I, seems like I, it. Yes, <laughs> I have 
always liked Tom Cruise, and uh, I, I'm not, I don't know him at all. Never met him. Actually, every time I've ever talked to someone who's worked with him, they say he's like the consummate professional I, I and, agreed. and amazing yeah. to work with. You hear that he like walks up to like, you know, the key grip and asks how his son did at the spelling bee two weeks ago. You know, like <laughs> he knows everything about everybody. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I've also heard he carries sandbags and stands and stuff. And like they, they've had to like, you know, tell him like, please let these people do their jobs. I heard he's like super yeah. involved in all of this. And he wants to like live life and experience all these things like climbing to the tallest buildings and going to yeah. outer space and going underwater. He wants to do everything. So uh, uh, and, and good for him. I think he is a solid movie star. I think a lot of his movies are really good. And I think, you know, you sometimes see him in a movie like Magnolia, where he shows the kind of range he has as an actual actor. And then, you know, you'll see him and in a Mission Tropic Impossible. Thunder. <laughs> Tropic Thunder? No, I mean, exact range as an actor. Yeah, there you go. Underappreciated in, yeah. in his in his ability to be funny. He's hilarious in that movie. Or you know, and then you'll see him in a Mission Impossible movie, like glued to the side of an airplane as it actually takes off, and you're like, "What the fuck is wrong with you, man?" <laughs> yeah. Now, this there's there's really some thrill-seeking, uh, yeah, yeah, but we didn't mean to, I didn't, didn't you know, Tom this Cruise. Isn't a, this isn't yeah. really a Tom Cruise beef, but there's that one Mission Impossible movie where he, like, trained for six months to be underwater for five minutes without breathing and, like, found the utmost specialist in that. And then when you see the scene, it's full of CGI shit. And it ruins <laughs> it ruins whatever realism that movie had going for it. It really made me sad. And so I was really expecting it to be awesome. And I'm like, well, as soon as you put a bunch of CGI shit in that scene, I assume everything's fake. So, well, you've got more Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise to look forward to because Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One is in post-production right now. And Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part Two, I think, is about to start shooting. So there you go. Let me guess. It's about someone who goes rogue from the, from the agency <laughs> and then rats out his organization and then they have to kind of disappear and go underground uh, to chase after some MacGuffin to stop the thing, which will at some point involve wearing a mask. And at the end, someone inside the organization was uh, betraying them the whole time. Dun, 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 dun. S- spoiler alert. <laughs> that's every Mission Impossible movie. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> All right. Well, well, Ben, I think that just about does it for our show today. Uh, where can people find you? if They want to track you down. Please find me at benrock.com. Go to benrock.com for all your Benrock information and accessories. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. Hotrodcameras.com, the sponsor of this fine program, the, the presenting sponsor. Yeah, you can track me down there or any of the socials. There's not too many Ilya Friedmans out there. There's about three. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to easy to find. Absolutely. So, Ilya, who should we thank today? Let's thank our producer, Alana Cody, who's, uh, you know, uh, fighting the good fight, putting things together, lining things up for us. Uh, Let's also thank Kay Zalatrachi, who is uh, composing all the music and new music for us here and off in his uh, world of doing, you know, incredible things. And of course, uh, last but never least, uh, Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who did inc- incredible work on this past week's uh, podcast with uh, Mike Prickett and the 100 Foot Wave. Oh my God, I, he did such a good job of putting that thing together. You have no idea. You, uh, you know, he, it probably was one of the most complicated ones to do, and, and he did it beautifully. And no one would ever be the wiser except that I completely revealed it in, uh, in, in the show last time. Oopsie doodle. Oh, well. anyway. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, I think that about wraps it up. Let's take us out. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com.
Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.